Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Tyrone. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking exercise and gut health with Dr. Sarah Campbell. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 82 of the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast. Today, we're joined with Dr. Sarah Campbell from Rutgers University, who's an associate professor and graduate program director studying the influence of exercise on gut microbes and intestinal health. Hello, Dr. Campbell. Hey, how are you? Sarah, I want to start with the how, how you got into this area of research, which is I think is fascinating. Yes, we both do. We're excited. <laughs> It is such a fun area. And still, you know, when I'm writing grants with colleagues, because we're interested in elucidating mechanisms, <clears throat> which I know we'll get to, you know, at some point, but I'm still surprised at some of the stuff that has been done that when I do a random search, I'm like, oh, look at that. There's a study, right? When you kind of expect none, or you do other searches and you're like, okay, there really is nothing. It's all just we pretty much think this and this and this is going on. So it's really interesting. But 10 years ago, believe it or not, when I um, came from my PhD, my postdoc at Florida State to Rutgers, you know, you kind of start, I'm an independent scientist now. What am I going to do to make my mark on the world? And, you know, I had had a discussion with um, who was going to be the director of the institute that I'm a, sci- a resident scientist now. And, you know, I looked at omega-3s and exercise and cholesterol metabolism. And, you know, there's just a lot of that going on. And he just kind of looked at me. He's like, what are you actually going to do with yourself? And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> you start, you know, um, you know, PubMedding. That's our science. You know, we don't Google. We PubMed in, in science. And, you know, I started looking into, okay, maybe obesity and, and gut because I initially thought about bioavailability of antioxidants to help reduce, you know, inflammatory responses and obesity and gut immediately came up with some of those early papers out of, you know, um, Jeff Gordon's lab and Ruth Lay's lab and Frederick Backhad and Peter Turnbaugh. turns out they're all kind of linked somehow on obesity in the gut microbiome. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is so exciting. And, you know, they're like, oh, there's this link between host metabolism. And so, and I'm like, okay, well, exercise is a great way to alter host metabolism. There's got to be something out there. And my next search was exercise microbiome. And it, it literally came back zero. And I was like, well, if I'm looking to make a mark on something, this could be it. And it really from there, that's, I mean, that's really how it started as crazy as that sounded a search of zero and then just lots of figuring out what to do next. Yeah. I think if there's any area of research where there's still a lot to uncover, it's definitely just the area of gut health and the microbiome in general. And it's also one of those fields that is just emerging and we're learning so much I, I don't know if I want to say so rapidly, but we are learning a decent amount in a, in a, in a pretty short time. We are because you said, as you mentioned, it's so popular. So, you know, you go to a search one day and then a week later, it's another search and you're like, that just increased by like a thousand papers or, you know, I mean, 
that's probably exaggerating, but I mean, it, it, it literally kind of goes up exponentially, you know, each week, each month that you, you know, start searching and looking for new things. And I, and I would totally agree. You know, when we start having these discussions with people, like, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I study gut and exercise. And you end up getting into conversations with people that were one, you learn way too much about their <laughs> habits and, and poop. So that's the whole thing just to be prepared for. But you realize is how many people truly do struggle with some sort of gut related issue, whether it just be distress, if you're stressed out or you ate the wrong thing today and you have an upset stomach or you have a headache, but your stomach hurts too, you know, and all of these really interesting little things start to come up in discussions with people. When you tell them you study gut health and you're like, okay, I'm in a really profound area. I could really hopefully help a lot of people, you know, who don't know or who to talk to or what to talk to about gut health. Cause I'm, you know, it's not something that a lot of people really, you know, get into, you know, it's, it's one of the more private things I think for, for people. I guess I kind of where I want to start with this conversation is really for uh, the sake of our audience and really understanding this whole concept, what exactly is the microbiome and what purpose it serves for us as far as we know so far? Right. So, you know, there's, there's two terms that are used interchangeably microbiome and then microbiota. So, you know, that's even a whole thing. And then, you know, to, to be really take it one step further, you kind of have to designate what microbiome or microbiota you're talking about, right? I think the big one out there is gut, but the reality is there are lots of microbiomes that are now being investigated like skin and respiratory and nasal and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, when you talk about microbiota, I think that's what most people think of. That's kind of like the bugs, what, you know, who is there and where are they inhabiting? And then microbiome adds that genetic component to it. So it's who's there, what are they, you know, what are area they inhabiting and what is that genetic, you know, contribution potential, right? So I know that it might seem like a slight difference, but I can assure you when you're writing something and you're talking about the bugs, it's themselves, you talk about microbiota. When you're talking about that genetic contribution that comes with it in, in the term of like omics, you know, you want to get into microbiome. So I know that's a slight difference, but an important one in science, especially when you're trying to describe things. And I'd say in terms of the gut um, microbiome and gut microbiota, the bugs that are there, it, one of the, you know, the biggest functions they do is to work in symbiosis with us. And, and in terms of nutrition, which is one of the biggest, you know, reasons that they're there is to really kind of harvest nutrients that typically are inaccessible by upper levels of the GI tract, right? So, you know, you normally get all of your digestion and absorption right after the stomach, but the complex carbohydrates, the fibers are a really great example of things that don't get digested until you get to the colon. And those microbes are then allowed to break down those fibers and, you know, produce what we call metabolites that then influence health. So that's kind of the importance, or at least I would say. Right. And that's where we have things like, you know, short chain fatty acids and we've got butyrate. And I, I think, yeah. so I recently did some grad work on specifically fiber and butyrate, which seems to be the biggest body of research in terms of gut permeability. Right. And, uh, it's just, it's cool stuff. It's interesting stuff, how the microbiome kind of contributes to the host health. Right. Mm-hmm. So can we kind of get into a little bit on, I guess, how bacteria kind of serves us 
Sure, sure. So you just mentioned, you know, the best ways, which is the, you know, digestion of uh, complex carbohydrates in the short chain fatty acids. So, you know, butyrate is one that we talk about a lot with exercise, just simply because one of the big effects of exercise on the microbiome is, or I really should say the microbiota is to enhance the presence of, uh, or abundance of butyrate producing microbes. You know, there's, there's evidence from some earlier studies from 2008 to show that there's butyrate, more butyrate there. You know, my colleague, you know, Jeff Woods and his lab have shown that the activity of butyrate producing um, enzymes all right, is also higher in the gut. So butyrate gets a lot of attention, but there's also acetate and propionate, which, which also have their role. Um, and believe it or not, what's really interesting is, you know, there have been some studies to show um, propionate and acetate both have a, effects on, it, you know, exercise tolerance and so forth. So there's really a role for all of the short chain fatty acids, but I think butyrate, as you mentioned, gets the most attention. So, you know, butyrate or uh, microbes affecting health is, is really, especially in the colon, a very integrated process. So you actually have like your, you know, your colon tissue. And then actually above that are two layers of mucus, for lack of a better word. And you have kind of this really dense layer that's, you know, there's some, you know, arguments out there, I shouldn't say arguments, but discussion about how penetrable that is, you know, in a healthy state. Um, but it's thought to be fairly impenetrable, although again, there's some, you know, evidence to suggest that's not so. But then there's this kind of like loose layer on top that's filled with glycans and sugars and all of these things that that's where the microbiota resolve, uh, reside, sorry, and kind of, and, and kind of feed, right? So that there's that relationship between that mucus layer where that those microbes live and kind of, you know, work to do their magic and get their food and, and kind of hopefully in harmony. And so to give you an idea is a lot of, of the inflammatory based bowel diseases that we think of, those mucus layers start to shrink and shrink and shrink. And, you know, at that point, then um, their food source kind of, you know, goes away, for example, and, um, you know, that penetrability becomes easier to, to get into. And so the, the microbiota, we say localized, but get closer to the tissue where then if you have these microbes that aren't uh, commensal or, you know, regular or normal, they're more pathogenic. And what happens is pathogenic, you think of disease state, they kind of get into those layers now and then activate the, the tissue where you offset an immune and an inflammatory response. So it's really important to have those microbes be in, in, um, you know, a, a nice, healthy kind of relaxed state interacting with those mucus layers to kind of keep the gut from overtly activating, you know, an immune or inflammatory response. I mean, a large proportion of the immune system and, and hence, you know, an in, in inflammatory based activation is, is in the gut, you know, it's called GALT, gut associated lymphoid tissue. So there's that really interesting, you know, interaction where those microbes kind of want to be in that nice, you know, uh, state where they interact with, with those, um, food sources on, on the mucus layer so that they can keep that tissue healthy and happy. So we basically want to create the, uh, most ideal environment for them to thrive. Right. Right. Which is, as we know now, like multifaceted. (laughs) How does exercise affect that environment for them? Right. So, you know, as I mentioned, I think the most common things that you could say, you know, happens 
with exercise are an, an increase in abundance of those butyrate producing microbes, right? And we just mentioned butyrate's really good. Butyrate help it, helps with the colon cells. It helps them to grow, proliferate. So, you know, divide, differentiate, become specialized cells to help, you know, the colon say uh, healthy and thriving. There's, you know, studies that show that exercise increases, actually increases the amount of butyrate in the colon. So you can measure that. Um, like I said, colleagues of mine had measured um, B-coat. It's the name of an enzyme that's responsible for kind of producing the butyrate. That tends to be higher as a result of exercise. So it seems like there's, you know, this trend for uh, butyrate production, which in essence really makes sense because, you know, that happy colon, that proliferating and differentiated colon to make sure it's matching all the, the functions is, is important because one that isn't is disease. And we know that exercise is a great preventative for things like, you know, inflammatory bowel diseases and or colon cancer. So it kind of makes sense in the context of, of some of those findings. I mean, like I said, you know, the, the other thing that's really interesting is um, there was the big Boston Marathon study, Nicole, right, that, that came out not too, yep. I say not too long ago, although COVID has made me completely unaware of how time has lapsed. So <laughs> I still think it's only been a, a couple of years since they discovered the villanella um, in the uh, fecal samples of all those marathon runners. And, 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 and actually what they found with the villanella is that it enhances propionate to work on metabolizing lactate, which we know is another important aspect of, of exercise. So, you know, there are becoming more studies that show that exercise doesn't just limit itself to enhancing butyrate, but that there are other aspects that could be beneficial as a result of that. I was listening to a pod, another podcast that you were on when we, when I was researching some of your work and you were talking about the two-way street between the microbiota and exercise and then exercise and the microbiota and how they, there is a connection that it's not just a one way um, body of work. Can you just maybe elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, um, you know, the first question is what does exercise do to the microbiota, right? I think that's the one way street. The reverse is, does the presence of a microbiota do something to enhance exercise, right? So I think that that's the, the two way street that we talk about. And, uh, you know, there's a growing body of, of literature. Um, and I say, I shouldn't say growing, it's really small still. There's only a couple of studies that I noted and, and hopefully we can get our, you know, publication out here very, very soon that shows some of that. But, you know, one of the ways you can test the impacts of the microbiota has on physiology or phenotype is to knock it out in, in essence, or use a germ-free mouse, which is a mouse that has no microbes that's really difficult to do. Sometimes you have to have specialized mice and specialized facility and specialized people to take care of them. And, and that can get very costly and time consuming, but a, you know, a well accepted way to do that now is to just use a cocktail of antibiotics and, and put that in the, the drinking water of the animals. And, you know, over, um, you know, a week or so it will knock out the, those microbes. And so, you know, then what we, what we did was we tried to exercise test them and then we took tissues from them and, and we noticed, and, and others did as well. You know, um, one of the first papers that, that I noted, although I think there are some before was in 2015 in a journal of strength and conditioning, they looked at a germ-free mouse and showed that the germ-free mouse couldn't run to the extent of the, you know, mice that had one microbe, let alone 
that had a full set of microbes. Mm -hmm. So what we noted was that these, these animals had a hard time, you know, with run to, you know, running distance and run to exhaustion, that it was just significantly reduced even after six weeks of extra training for them. So this was six weeks of training. We simply just gave them a week of antibiotics. So it's not like they're detrained. It's not anything else. We just simply put them on the antibiotics and tested them. And that running distance was so low is actually below what their baseline was, their pre-training status. So it, it dropped pretty substantially. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. It is. From a it performance is. standpoint, you know. Right, right. And, and so what's, what's not only interesting about that is, you know, a colleague of mine at Kentucky has, has shown that the antibiotics or the absence of the microbiota disrupts the, the ability of the muscle to hypertrophy. The data that we're going to be, you know, uh, publishing soon shows that it disrupts um, hind limb blood flow. So the blood flow to the muscles is, is altered with the decreased microbiota. Um, mitochondria function is re reduced in, in um, the antibiotic treated mice. So their ability to undergo oxidation, which is the main way to produce energy or an ATP, you know, other um, aspects of mitochondrial function are also lower. So there's this growing trend of, okay, we've knocked out the microbiota and now gradually major adaptations to training like hypertrophy and blood flow and mitochondrial function are all significantly reduced with this, you know, just one week of antibiotics after they've been training and training and training. So it's, it's, it is quite profound and it's something to, you know, think about. Um, there are a few studies looking at antibiotics and, and training from my gosh, uh, you know, I was, when I was looking eighties and nineties, and um, but a lot of it is, and shows, you know, fatigue in some studies, but not all, but it's mostly when the athletes were ill. So it's really difficult to tease apart. Are they not running and they tired because they're sick or the antibiotics? You know, one yeah. of that podcast that you're referring to, we, you know, you, you brainstorm just like, okay, what about just putting in a healthy athlete who's not ill on an antibiotic? I mean, that would be the, the best way human wise to try and see if you can't replicate some of that animal. Yeah. Data that's yeah. That's pretty cool though, from a performance standpoint. Um, it's and something big to think about, right? Yeah. You know, if your athletes are on an antibiotic, does, you know, is it worth maybe taking that time off? Are they doing more right to recover on an right. antibiotic rather than just, you know, in a week's time, those kind of athletes are not going to lose, you yeah. know, where their training was, and it might be better just to let them recover. And then after the antibiotics have cleared, kind of get them back on the regimen. Yeah. I mean, I would even think about it also, not really from a, and I don't know how we can test this, but just from a practical standpoint of uh, an athlete's nutrition, right. And their nutrition protocol going into a competition or an event or something of that sort. And what are you feeding to, uh, I guess the, I don't know, what is the word I'm looking for? Like, what, like, what are you eating to uh, potentially protect, protect or protect or, you know, the, you know, decrements that might be seen as a result of the antibiotic. Right. So yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think the age old thing, and, and I know that we wanted to get to probiotics at some point, but you know, while you're in an, on an antibiotic, you know, that those probiotics, you know, food, you know, I'm always a food first person. I will, oh, I will put that caveat up front, <laughs> you know, anything that's, um, you know, yogurt or fermented or, you know, will give some of those bugs, um, and, you know, just ensuring that some of the, even the prebiotic type of foods, you know, of, you know, again, with that food first, you know, priority is, 
feed the bugs the things that they like and hope that that enhances their activity and, you know, might prevent some of that decline. So that's where kind of probably a pre and a probiotic approach is probably helpful, especially when they're on the antibiotics. Yeah. So are there specific bacteria that we know that we've identified that like serve this purpose and what they do in the body, like the mechanisms at work? Right. So no, but that is the grants I'm submitting in a week. <laughs> Yay. Literally. literally. <laughs> okay. Literally. I mean, it is. So it's, it's ideally to understand what I would be, and I don't want to insult anybody, but if you study microbes in a community, you know, it's really hard to think that one or two microbes are going to make a difference. I mean, we're talking about 10 to the 12 trillion. You've only identified several thousand microbes. And even of those several thousand, how many have you truly identified what they functionally do? It's one to say that they're there and they're abundant, but it's another thing to truly tell you what they're doing in that community to then, you know, augment host health. So I think, to be honest with you, it would be kind of like a suite of microbes, right? They call it a, we call it a guild or a functional guild. Um, it would be several microbes working together to enhance that host health. And my guess is it's just not one microbe in particular, but a set of several working together to kind of make that response. Uh, that's not to say that there hasn't been, you know, tested that Villanella is a really great example of they found that. And, um, you know, there, I, I haven't checked, uh, Fit Biome, I think was the name of um, the company or the, the product that looked to sell that Villanella as a, as a probiotic. I mean, if you just think about from a practical standpoint, someone who's never exercised before, you're just going to give them that probiotic and then are they, are they going to enhance that exercise capacity? Or is it like, as Nicole and I were just, is it more a two-way street? Like you got the bugs, you got to exercise to get the bugs who then help you exercise to get more bugs. I think it's probably this, this connection other than, you know, thinking that we're just going to feed people these microbes. And then all of a sudden they're going to have enhanced exercise capacity. It's got to be a host microbe interaction. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, a team, a team approach. Yes. You know, hundred percent, a team approach. I love the way you say that. I think that's totally true. I, I do think the supplement industry has a way of jumping on like a single study and all right, we're making this product and let's roll with it. So, right. I, and, I, I, and I think people look to probiotics. They like that. Yeah, they do. And, and it is an exploding and has been for a really long time, you know, industry with still not a lot of how we understand how they work. I mean, it tells you something when the NIH has, you know, put out money with, where literally the call for a proposal is mechanistic understanding of probiotics. I mean, it, it just shows you that we really don't know truly how they work and, and to what, um, you know, level they're actually working when the NIH is calling for mechanistic studies. So, you know, I think that that's just, you know, telling in and of itself. What I was going to ask um, is how do we determine the difference between what good bacteria is and what bad bacteria is? Right. So so that's a, that's a great question, especially in the context of, you know, what I just mentioned before saying that it's, you know, could be a bad bacteria or a good bacteria without actually saying, putting it in culture and testing what its physiology is, it, you know, it's hard to say, 
there are obviously ones out there that we know are, are, are bad, right? I mean, they're the ones that cause the stomach flu and the H pylori that are, you know, involved Mm -hmm. in inflammatory bowel disease. So, you know, those are pathogenic because they've been directly linked to disorders or diseases that have been studied. Um, And I think that that's really how you determine whether something is a good bacteria or a bad bacteria. You determine, you know, if it's commensal, does it seem to be in high abundance when you test it? Does it tend to, you know, have a favorable, you know, outcome or, uh, you know, associated with a, a kind of like a regular healthy physiology based process? Or when you, you know, put that microbe in culture, does it start killing cells and, you know, producing, um, you know, uh, metabolites that are linked to, you know, more adverse or pathogenic related outcomes. So that's really how you test it, which I think is, is to your point with the, you know, people jumping on things before potentially they're ready. I mean, it, there really is a lot of, of testing and, um, homework to go into how these microbes work. I mean, culturing is an entire field all on itself. And, you know, I have collaborators who help with, you know, understanding sequence who then do bioinformatics to understand who's there and, and what abundance. And then other ones who are just experts in culturing and figuring out what those do and then reconnecting that, that microbe and that physiology to its genetic sequence to ensure that you actually have the microbe uh, with the appropriate sequence. So I think it's a much bigger scientific process than people want to kind of give it credit for. I might just change career paths after this podcast. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You want to come join the lab and do some fun work with us? Let's go. I'm down. (laughs) Um, So I guess the the next thing I want to kind of get into is the uh, gut permeability piece from an exercise standpoint. And I guess I don't know if I want to say gut permeability is leaky gut because I think leaky gut would be like kind of the extreme of that Um, because I have read some information or arguments that permeability, some level of permeability is potentially a normal mechanism. And I have large and small poor pathways, right? So if you want to call that permeable, right, technically that that is permeable. I mean, all of our cells technically are semi permeable, right? Depending on what binds to it, you know, glucose is a great example. You get you know, insulin binding to its receptor to make that, you know, membrane permeable to, to glucose to be taken up into the cell. Right. So in, in some ways, a permeability is, is kind of, you know, a tricky term. So I can appreciate what you're saying. Right. So with the permeability piece, we have seen in some research that shows that exercise increases permeability. Is that correct? There's yes. So there's two really good examples of what they're, when that kind of consistently happens. And so that's kind of um, ischemia. So ischemia is just a fancy word for um, low blood flow, right? So um, when you're exercising, we know most of the cardiac output or the the blood that's circulated per minute is um, shunted or directed away from tissues that don't need it towards the tissue that does need it. And I say tissue because the main tissue that gets it is the skeletal muscle, right? heart and brain are other two tissues that really don't sacrifice their, their blood flow much during, you know, that time for obvious reasons, right? The heart being the muscle and the brain being the one controlling the, the signal to the muscle to contract, but the GI tract, especially depending on the intensity can sacrifice its blood flow. I, I tease my ex-phys class and it's probably an archaic example, but I'm like, say you're, you know, at a picnic in the middle of the woods and, you know, the bear smells your, you know, sandwich and comes, you know, for you, are you going to 
worry about digesting your sandwich or <laughs> blood flow to the muscle to run. And I, you know, I, again, it's probably a totally off weird example, but I think it gives, you know, the students reminds them of the, the, you know, the priority and the priority is the muscle. And especially as exercise intensity rises, that ischemia to the gut gets, well, I should say worse is a bad word, but you know, that blood, blood flow is further restricted from the gut as intensity rises because that demand for the muscle becomes greater. And so that ischemia, especially at higher exercise intensities can potentially trigger a leaky gut type of scenario. The other, the other scenario that's been um, mentioned is uh, heat stress. So if you're exercising in kind of this hot, humid environment, especially, I mean, you can imagine, especially maybe at a higher intensity, right? You can kind of, you know, double whammy yourself there. But those are kind of the two, you know, really um, well-researched areas in terms of, you know, leaky gut and exercise is pretty well associated with those two. So I guess from a coaching standpoint, because that's where we're at with a lot Mm -hmm. of uh, nutrition coaching and exercise programming for the gen pop. Um, and the overtraining is rampant and yeah. I will say overtraining is overtraining and under eating is rampant amongst particularly the female population Females. is that mm-hmm. we find that a lot. It's like, I'm running on the treadmill constantly. So I would think that, you know, that is more kind of leading towards more reasons why not to overtrain because you're overstressing on a consistent basis, over-exercising, the right. intensity is too high, the duration's too high, and you're getting lack of blood flow. And then you might have some gut issues uh, as a result of that. Right. And I don't, and honestly, that's a great question because now I'm going to PubMed it afterwards. <laughs> curious, but you know, what's really difficult is I had a colleague who looked at overreaching and overtraining and one, it's hard to, you know, get an IRB approved study in that area, right? Um, it would almost have to be it's established or known overreaching or overtraining. And even then, sometimes that's even hard to tease out in and of itself. So I can only imagine that that might be just, you know, a difficult area to look at unless, you know, you as the outsider can probably, you know, take a look at somebody's program and say, oh, that, you know, if this is, if this is actually what they're doing it would be interesting to see, you know, what their, you know, permeability or leaky gut related symptomology might be. Yeah. I think the other piece to that, that, that I'm thinking of in terms from an overtraining standpoint is maybe not necessarily that they're overtraining, but they're training too intense, too fast. So if they're a deconditioned client that we have, and they're going from, instead of a couch to 5k, they're going from a couch to a marathon in like a couple of months and they're really pushing their body past what their capability is. That's kind of what I think of when you say that, Daron. That is when things start to get really off. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's not just gut too, right? The whole body is going right. to be acting very adversely to that. And so, you know, you would think that the, the gut would be included in, you know, some of those adverse reactions. I mean, I can't imagine what their muscles must be, must be going yeah. When, you know, even their cardiovascular system, you know, you think about the respiratory system and their, you know, lactate and ventilatory thresholds. I mean, you're talking about a whole system wide kind of shock. Do we have information about type of exercise and how that affects different microbes? Or are we still trying to uncover that stuff? Most of the literature out there has been really done on aerobic exercise. They're starting to look at resistance training. I think I saw a few studies, you know, on that. 
um, high intensity interval training in general, moderate intensity aerobic exercise benefits the gut microbiota. That's pretty standard, you know, animal human studies now have really established that. I think at the higher intensities, that's where you start wondering what that's doing to the, the microbiota and the various types of, you know, uh, resistance training and, and how that, you know, um, will affect the microbes. So, uh, you know, again, I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves at, again, what specific, you know, microbes are going to be associated with um, that training, because, you know, a lot of things to re- remember is, you know, one, again, I, you know, I, I adhere to that it's probably a group or a collection of those microbes that are going to be doing that. But, you know, two, to, to go back to the point earlier is, you know, it's just not identifying who they are, but are they actually doing what we think they're doing, you know, to promote that exercise? So it's not just in culture, but, you know, that's sometimes where you do need to shell out the money for a germ-free mouse and say, you find, you know, microbes that seem to be abundant in your animal model that has excellent exercise capacity. And you take some of those microbes that, you know, are at the top that seem to be associated with your metabolite that it's linked to exercise. And you just put them in that mouse and see, does that increase exercise capacity? And there's, there was a study from 2019 that, that looked at a couple of microbes and did that. And they, you know, they were, you know, somewhat successful in, in seeing some changes with exercise capacity. I'm interested to get into testing in terms of what type of tests, what are the facets of testing, like what goes into actually testing the gut microbiota? Right. So that's a, that's a great question. The ones I usually get all the time. Okay. We're writing the grant. What can we do? And I'm like the same thing from the last grant that we just wrote two months ago, (laughs) haven't changed, you know, that much. And you say it tongue in cheek. Um, well, the field is advancing, you know, rapidly. Some of the techniques used to, to test and get at exactly what you're looking for are, are, you know, either difficult or, or expensive to do, right? So, you know, in order to establish, you know, some of those guilds that, that seem to work, you know, you employ a variety of, of techniques, right? So there's two types of, you know, sequencing type. I mean, there's lots of sequencing type, but generally it's kind of like, you know, short read versus, you know, long read. And ideally you kind of want to do both to ensure you're getting, you know, the coverage short reads go up, go up to about 500 base pairs, the long reads, some of the long reads that, that, you know, we kind of specialize in go up to 4,500 base pairs, right? So you're looking at, and then 20 million reads of 4,500 base pairs, and then matching that with the known database that's out there for what microbe it is. So then you have to connect those two. Then we run metabolomics, which is you take the, you know, the fecal or the fecal sample and you see what metabolites are present. Then you get serum samples to understand what metabolites and biomarkers are in the serum. And then you have to link that animal by animal and group by group or human by human group by group to then find out functionally where things lie. And then once you find out about those microbes, you then start employing various, you know, techniques where you, you know, use maybe certain antibiotics to only block those um, microbes that are there. And if you block, you know, hopefully just those and exercise capacity diminishes, okay, then that enhances that theory. Or you take that group of microbes that you think is your guild 
And you get, you put them into that germ-free animal. And if the phenotype manifests itself of enhanced exercise capacity, then you're like, okay, we're getting somewhere, but it's an expensive process. <laughs> when you that's say- how we do it. When you talk when you talk about base pairs, you're talking about like the genetics of the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, yeah. bacteria. It's like the sequence, the DNA. So you have to get the yeah, yeah. Okay. That's a lot. It's cool. It's cool stuff. It's a lot <laughs> it of uh it is a lot, you a know, lot of it's, work. So. It's it's interesting because the the gut stuff, it took me a while because I came from a background of nutrition with mostly reading about muscle protein synthesis and you know, that side of things, how to build muscle, hypertrophy research, things like that. And then I go over into reading in the field of the gut microbiome and, and, and gut health and things like things of that sort and gut permeability. And it's like a whole different language. And reading. Trust me, I've, been, I've only been in yeah. this space, believe it or not, like 10 years. So I came from a, I was a cholesterol metabolism person before this. I mean, I just been in this 10 years. So I've, I've just learned all of this in the last <laughs> 10 years and, and been researching it. So, and I know that might sound, oh, 10 years in the grand scheme of science, that's, you know, not a lot of time. And, but it has been the most exciting adventure. I can tell you that for sure. Yeah. It's, you know, I just find it interesting how people are like, oh, well, like if, if you can read one, if you can read research, you can read research. And I'm like, no, like you, you, you have to learn a new language to be able to read in a different body of research, even in the same, I guess, somewhat quote unquote, the same field, but it's not even really the same field. Right. It's true. It's true. Cause you know, m- deep dives into mechanisms involve pathways that sometimes you've never heard of. Right. You know, and, and, and those pathways have some redundancy across maybe disease states or disorders, but you know, will work in, in different ways. So, you, you know, you kind of have to get down and, and understand that. And it's quite, it was what I spent the whole morning doing before this, you know, chat with you guys was going into some pathways based on some data we have for, you know, a second grant that we're writing. So, you know, there's definitely a lot to learn here. I feel like, you know, we've talked about gut health with Tarona and I, but we're two years to this podcast, two years of the podcast. And every time we talk about it, I feel like not only do we learn so much more, but I also feel like I don't know anything. Like, I feel like I still need to I don't know, continue to search. Right. Well, we always say research um, generates more questions than it answers. So (laughs) that's maybe a good sign that you have more and more questions after you learn things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's also kind of the concept of the more, you know, the less, you know, that, you yeah, know, the less I feel <laughs> I know. Right. 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 Just when you learn this pathway, you learned out like this one little, you know, molecule is like involved in this whole thing over here. And you're like, that's probably somehow related. Yeah. I'm going to have to dive. That is going to be tomorrow's assignment. I just figured yeah. out today. So mm-hmm. we got to get into tomorrow's tomorrow. Can't do that. So- right. I think where I want to leave off, and I know you touched up on this a little bit, is the uh, probiotics. Is there any place where they fit currently in terms of recommending or taking probiotics right now that you know of? Right. So, you know, just, you know, just because I'm a food first person doesn't mean probiotics potentially don't don't have their place. Right. I mean, there are individuals with a disrupted, say, gut health or, you know, who's who swear by them. And I would never tell someone not to, if, if that's how they feel probiotics, uh, there's no evidence to suggest that they hurt you. 
right? I mean, so, you know, I think the biggest thing for me is I think so few of us know what our actual microbiome is. Do we know that it's actually helping us, you know? And, and so, and I think that that's more just science-based questions. Again, the NIH is calling for these mechanisms to, you know, look into that a little bit more, you know, probiotics in terms of, of athletes, it seems to the one big really thing is it's more ergogenic in terms of kind of like, um, not directly, but indirectly ergogenic. And, and there is a lot of evidence to suggest there's been several meta-analyses that show that the probiotics actually do keep at the athlete health, healthier, lowers the you know time frame for upper respiratory tract infections. And a healthy athlete is a training athlete. And so you could almost argue that that you know, might be worth it. I think the, the evidence on the extent and how much it, it improves performance is probably not as strong. Um, there's the position stand that the International Society of Sport and Nutrition put out in, in 2019. And, you know, they will say, you know, single strain probiotics, there's not a lot of evidence. Multiple strain probiotics, there's, you know, research that says it's great for VO2, it's great for power, it's great for this but just as money that, that say it, it doesn't work. So, you know, equivocal research like that is hard to really dig your heels in and say, oh, for sure it does, or for sure it doesn't. I think hopefully as a result of some of these, you know, federal monies behind exploration of how and why these work might help us to elucidate that. But there's, you know, certainly, um, you know, taking a probiotic is not going, that I've seen, is not going to hurt. I've never seen any studies say that it's, you know, that has hurt an individual. Um, just remember like, you know, exercise training, you know, the microbiota is kind of settled into itself by a young age, two, three, four. Um, so if you're interested in, in changing the microbiota, it kind of has to be a consistent change, you know, um, a consistent, um, intervention. Because once you kind of stop, it will kind of, you know, revert back. And exercise is a great example, right? You train and train and train and train. And then for whatever reason, you have to stop training or you get off your bandwagon or however it works, right? And all of those training effects kind of go away, which is always why I say, you know, the gut microbiome is a, a good thing to add to a, a training. It, it, it changes as long as that stimulus is there. So the probiotics will adjust that microbiota as long as they're being taken. But, you know, when we start to, you know, take those things away, those microbes, you know, will kind of return back to what your baseline is. Yeah. And I think the other piece that makes that more challenging is the fact that we don't just have environmental factors that are affecting what our gut microbiome looks like, but we also have genetic factors. That's kind of like our bioidentity where, you know, we're just genetically, we have this type of bacteria where somebody may have something else. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's always like, you know, probably there's usually always way too many factors to control for and, and, or account for. Um, but you know, I, I guess that's what makes, you know, science really interesting and, um, and the ways that you can kind of, you know, help, you know, alleviate those through, you know, good diet, exercise, sleep, you know, all of those, you know, wellness pillars and healthy lifestyle components. Yes. Yes, I know. <laughs> Wouldn't be in this field if I didn't get on the soapbox or two. I seconds. was gonna say I appreciate oh, that. Oh, yes. Thank you, thank you <laughs> for yeah. all of our listeners. Yes, <laughs> all great stuff, uh, Sarah. I really appreciate you coming on this podcast. I really appreciate you talking to us, and I look forward to your upcoming research and just upcoming research in this field in general. 
And I look forward in the next decade to be on episode, I don't know, somewhere in the thousands talking about this. <laughs> I know. Poor hopefully research. we've uncovered more and we have more information. Um, but I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about uh, this topic here today. Well, thank you for having me. I always love talking about it. So follow up anytime if you have questions. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. 